Hey everyone, how are you doing? You're listening to the Wild Voices Project, the podcast where we explore the people who are saving wildlife and habitats in all kinds of ways, from writing to campaigning to on the ground conservation to political lobbying. And today I'm in conversation with a good friend of mine who I've known for a few years, Dr. Richard Benwell. He's currently a new policy advisor at the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs in the UK, and he's former head of government affairs for the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust, which is the role he was in at the time that I recorded this interview with him. In this conversation, we discuss how we can restore our waterways to good health, why regulation, policy and legislation are so important for our wildlife, and how the UK's exit from the European Union can be an important opportunity to increase environmental protection. We also cover his advice on the skills that is needed for a career in environmental lobbying and politics. Richard is a good friend and we worked together for a number of years, particularly when we were both at the RSPB. So it was really good fun to interview him for the podcast. He's one of the most eloquent, well-informed and friendly people I know in the environmental movement. And I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. The Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature all over the world. And we're part of Wild Voices Media, a global project bridging emerging storytellers and aspiring environmental professionals. You can find out more about the podcast at wildvoicesproject.org or by following us on Twitter at wildvoicesproj. And you can learn more about the global community at Wild hyphenvoices.org and don't forget that you can subscribe to the podcast in itunes or stitcher or just find the latest episodes on our website let's dive in Okay, well, welcome to the Wild Voices Project podcast, and I'm going to start where where I normally start, which is by asking where your interest in nature, the outdoors, the environment began. They began with a hand-me-down from a very dusty shelf from my grandfather, who had a pair of uh, the most clunky binoculars in the entire universe, uh, but they were that sort that uh, seemed to have a romantic story around them, and uh, he, he gave them to me, and I started playing with them. Uh, and then I was lucky enough to go to a uh, school in the middle of Birmingham uh, that had a Friday afternoon sports option that was bird watching. Uh, so... A sports <laughs> option that was bird watching. <laughs> Yes, well, it was notionally sports. Most of the boys went off and did CCF and uh, uh, and uh, press ups and uh, uh, rugby and things. But uh, I was the only boy for a while on the bird watching option. So that sounds like my kind of school. <laughs> it was great. Um, uh, you wouldn't think it in the middle of Birmingham, but uh, we were right next door to a triple SI and uh, uh, had two fantastically inspiring teachers who. Uh, taught me the ropes and uh, I spent my afternoons counting uh, gulls on the on the reservoir. Excellent. Well, when I asked that question, that was not the answer I was expecting. Um, <laughs> so you were putting those binoculars to good use? I was. I used those binoculars for years and years and years uh, and they were 
really rubbish in many ways. You had to sort of squint with one eye, uh, not to get a headache, but uh, they, they did the job. Uh, and I felt sort of guilty upgrading in the end. Um, and were you doing any bird watching in your spare time outside of school, or was it just confined to uh, school PE lessons? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we became a little gang of, of boys in the end. So while I was only one uh, by myself for a while, but there were a few of us for a couple of years who, who went out together and we went uh, for overnight trips to Canuck Chase to listen to the night jars. And we went together to Norfolk to see the sea, which for a Birmingham boy was uh, a novelty. We had been to Western Supermare before that. <laughs> so, um, uh, so yeah, a few of us uh, got, got into it and went, uh, went out to see what we could see together. Have you got any, not necessarily rare birds, but have you got any particularly special memories of birds that you saw? Yeah, well, there was, there was the one that got away. Um, so we thought we had a firecrest after a fleeting view um, in, in the middle of Edgebaston. Uh, and um, uh, I'm, ne I'm not sure to this day whether it was uh, a imaginative take on a gold crest or whether the firecrest was th there. But for lunchtime after lunchtime after that, we went firecrest hunting. Uh, and uh, even though we never saw the, 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 the little fellow again, it was a delight to, to have the excitement of going to find him. Uh, the one thing that we definitely did have that you wouldn't expect in the middle of Birmingham uh, was a repeat visitor of a water rail. Uh, uh, yeah, and that was, uh, that was really exciting uh, to be able to trundle five minutes out of class and uh, on a on an icy day when there was a bit of a rink for him to come out and be brave on to uh, to, to see water rail on a few occasions so that was very cool and did your your trips to to norfolk bring sort of uh bring new families and groups of birds into your sphere of awareness <laughs> i'm still rubbish at waders um <laughs> Uh, there was um, certainly it was a, a difficult and different experience uh, to the, the, the tits and the woodland birds of Birmingham to uh, to go out and try and figure out the difference between all these uh, leggy leggy grey grey beaky things. Uh, but that was an exciting new challenge. Hmm, very nice. Okay, um, I want to ask. Um, so how do you how do you build wildlife, the outdoors, birds into your into your now very busy days and weeks these days? There is never enough time, uh, but one of the joys of doing a uh, job that combines politics and environment is that uh, you can always use that as an excuse to get MPs out on site. And yes, it does uh, increase their uh, susceptibility to the message. You know, if you get out an, an MP and you can say, look, look, there's the swift that you're the, the species champion for and get them excited to see it. They're much more likely to want to take the uh, measures needed to protect the wildlife. But it's also, don't tell my boss, a good excuse to go and see some birds. Mm. Okay. Um, just going back to the PE thing, despite, your, despite using your game sessions for <laughs> bird watching, someone recently told me that you are nowadays quite, quite a good runner. Is that a I myth, can... or can you confirm that rumour? <laughs> I wouldn't say good, but I do. I, I do the odd race or two, and um, uh, it keeps uh, keeps me keeps me zip, zipping about. Uh, 
if it's feeling painful in any day, I remind myself of the, the days where I've got meetings to run to uh, in Westminster and that's what it's all about. So I can keep zipping from one thing to the next. But I can't say that I enjoy nature while I'm running. Uh, it's like trying to see uh, a beautiful thing through a red haze of pain. So, so while, <laughs> while, while I do run a lot, um, uh, I think I usually overdo it and uh, can't say that it's a great way to appreciate the outdoors. <laughs> okay, yeah, I was interested. I mean, I, I do a bit of running. Uh, and I always try and do it in beautiful places, but it's much harder to, it's not really possible to focus in on the, uh, on the finer details of that, whether it be birdsong or, you know, things that are flying by it's um yeah like you said it's a lot more difficult when you're when your calves are burning to um to focus on the beauty of the natural world um, it is what but i'm um, very lucky to live in a in a in the countryside and so uh, plenty of walks that uh, i can do on a non-running day uh, and it's well worth the commute into into work in london to be able to get out again each day and uh, actually got national trust land right around my home so um thank you to you and your colleagues for keeping that in beautiful condition oh that's excellent okay i'm going to turn next to uh one of the uh so i've not really done this before i don't think one of the crowdsourced questions that someone sent me on twitter (laughs) i wasn't expecting quite such a response but it was great um so paul who we both know asked what's the most beautiful place you've ever been to um, well, I was thinking about this after I saw the tweet, um, and the place I have in my memory as the most beautiful place is a place I would never be able to find again or even name. Um, it was just a little patch of perfect woodland with uh, uh, a stream running through it uh, just off the Offers Dyke path um, that we walked a couple of years ago, and it was just the perfect little elf glade, you know, the sort of place where you imagine uh, that if, uh, if if Elrond could walk off the pages of The Lord of the Rings and into a, a, a real-life setting, it's the sort of place where he'd hang out. Uh, and it was just such a perfect moment. And I think any, any experience of a place is about the experience of, the, of life that you're enjoying with it at that point. Uh, and the joys of the the Offers Dyke Path, uh, and uh, the joys of the the, the, the perfect uh, packed lunch that I was able to take out and enjoy in that little elf glade, uh, all added up to uh, to make the place seem like a little idyll. Uh, so that's uh, that, that that's the best one. But the best one I could name is uh, probably um, the University Farm in Cambridge, which uh, is just off Huntingdon Road. Oh, I didn't uh, even know about that. It's it's brilliant. Uh, um, it, the astronomy department has uh, a sort of little observatory down there, and they've got all these lit paths. And the university's got this farm where you can go and uh, see badgers, uh, and uh, and uh, they've got this lovely um, old graveyard alongside that's um, all decked out in trees and you can sit sit at Wittgenstein's grave and enjoy and enjoy the birds and the trees uh, and uh, it was just a place that I went so often uh, uh, that uh, I came to appreciate its its 
the, the many beauties it had to offer through the seasons, even though it's not so, sort of designated or, or known as a beauty spot. I think uh, often it's the places you know the best uh, where you get to know the secret beauties of a place. And that's the one that's uh, enduring in my mind. Mm, very nice. Um... But now everybody will go there, uh, so it won't be a secret anymore. <laughs> It'll be trashed. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, I want to come back to, to habitats and special places in a little bit. But um, given, your, given your career to date and your experience in Westminster, I wanted to turn to Westminster next. And as, as you and I both know, at times being in the buildings of Westminster can feel quite far away from from place, beautiful places like the two that you've described. Um, and particularly for people listening to this who might, might be much more involved in conservation on the ground but might not engage with or think about much um, politics or legislation. Could you say in your own words why policy, regulation and legislation are so important for our natural environment and our wildlife? Yeah, I think... Uh it's really important to remember as conservationists that a single decision made in a single moment uh, on any random day in Westminster could be as beneficial for us as conservationists or uh, as transformative as years of practical work on the ground. So the way I see it is that we could invest all our time and money into digging wonderful wetlands uh, and that will always be the efforts of a few people who care. What we want to do is change the system so that the right things happen as standard. And that's why changing a law that can um, influence planning decisions every day, everywhere around the country, or uh, changing a taxation regime so that, you know, you, you, something like the plastic bag tax, where um, millions of everyday decisions will be guided by a single political event intervention can make so much of a change um, and on the flip side of course get things wrong uh, and it can be absolutely destructive so uh, we've seen decisions over the last few years that have uh, prioritized uh, economic growth and the exploitation of, of North Sea oil and gas and uh, tax breaks for exploiting those um, those uh, non-renewable, uh, totally destructive sources of energy. So for me, it's those, uh, it's the potential to make systemic changes that's so exciting about conservation that can mean that we don't always have to be um, struggling to preserve a particular place, but we can make changes across the board. And you, you mentioned, Matt, in your introduction there, how um, the context of a workplace can can change things and this is uh, really important for us as conservationists as we try to bring to life what we're doing with with policymakers because uh, you've probably noticed when you go into Westminster those 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 big green screens in the corners of each room mm, yes yeah they're called the enunciators uh, for, for those who haven't visited, and they they declare the business of the house every day. Uh, and it was really telling for me when I worked there um, every day that they start the day with an announcement of the security status of, uh, of the UK. It'll say things like threat level severe, 
uh, and and politicians go into the house every day and the first thing that they see is this this threat of terrorism and that changes the mindset about the way they go about legislating and the first thing they see on their desk every day is the economic report that says you know how, how well markets are doing and whether the FTSE's going up and down and that will influence the way they they think about things but what they don't get in that Westminster world where everything is green because the leather's green but nothing's green because they don't see nature they don't get the daily reminders that we get uh, about how everything we do in life is is dependent on nature and I see it as part of our role to bring that um, uh, that truly green part of life uh, into the into the Westminster bubble uh, and uh, to shape the policy making context so that they're not just always thinking about markets and about you know the really important things like <laughs> I won't diminish the importance of the the threat level of terrorism, but we have to remind them that there's a threat level to nature too, uh, and that um, when they make uh, the laws that govern our lives, they should have uh, nature's needs in mind as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit upon a number of important things there, but one that stood out to me was the, the point that you made that while it's easy to feel disheartened by politics and see it as short-termist, the decisions that are taken in Westminster on a single day can far outlast the government of the day, can far outlast the five-year term that makes us sometimes feel like politics is so short-term. So those decisions are crucial for years, if not decades, to come mm. after them at times. Um, I think it's, it's, it's amazing that we can do that, really. Um, when you sort of read the, the classic textbooks of, uh, of economics about how people make decisions, um, you're always confronted with these public good problems of how you manage a scarce resource and how the sort of uh, individually rational actor will always take because he can't uh, control what everyone else will do. So everybody uses up their own little bit of the commons because it's very hard to uh, to manage a common resource collectively. But, you know, we have this amazing thing uh, that is Parliament, that is the law of the land, that lets us plan together for the future in a way that really no other uh, species can do, obviously. <laughs> you know, no, the, the ability to plan uh, together to limit our consumption now in order to improve our lot in the future and the lot of future generations is a wonderful thing and it amazes me that we can do that not just on the national level but that we can actually do it internationally. How many parties are there to the Framework Convention on Climate Change? It's 190 something. Mm. That's 190 something countries that have said around the world we're going to limit our lifestyle now because we foresee a problem in the future and we want to uh, avert it if we can. That is, you know, it's a scary thing that climate change is happening, but it's an amazing thing that as a species and as a society, we've got the foresight to, to get together and make these laws and tr binding treaties, as you say, that will have a, a lasting effect on uh, on our lives and and change the way that we govern ourselves to look after these precious things for the future. Yeah, that um, 
I was going to go somewhere else, but that actually brings me around nicely to, to another question that I wanted to ask. So you, you made reference to decisions in, the, in recent years, like the decision to prioritise the economic recovery of oil and gas, just as an example, that have put the economy or other priorities ahead of the natural environment. Obviously, today, whilst at the point when we're speaking, we stand at quite an important moment for the environment, which I'm sure we can come on to in a bit more depth as the UK prepares to leave the EU and that picture could look like a big opportunity, but there are also lots of risks. I just wanted to ask to begin with, with regards to that, what conservation successes uh, that have been decisions taken by governments or politicians of the day in the UK can we draw hope from in recent decades, but also perhaps in recent months or years? There've been there've been so many actually. Uh, I think we shouldn't um, forget how many brilliant decisions there've been that have helped to uh, conserve nature. But there are some really sort of totemic ones over the over the decades. Um, when you think about the framework for um, the protection of of national parks and um, the designation of triple SIs, uh, that these laws were imagined at the same time as bombs were still falling on the nation at the end of the Second World War. You can go back and read Hansard, where, where politicians are discussing how nothing is as important at a time of national crisis as preserving our um, common heritage, natural heritage. Uh, and it was right at the end of the war that we came up with these crucial environmental laws that have, have helped protect our most special uh, sites of scientific interest and in our national parks. So that's one. And then, of course, there was the, the clean air laws that came a decade later. So in this country, we had done wonderful things in, in terms of scientific progress and uh, innovation and industrial progress. Uh, in the 19th century, but then we started to wake up to the fact that it was killing us too. Uh, 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 but our politicians took hold of it, uh, grasped that the great smogs were some were a, a bad byproduct of industrialization, and passed um, amazing clean air laws that have improved things a lot. And okay, we, we know that there's still a lot to be done with, what is it, 40,000 premature deaths from air pollution a year. But the fact is that in the 50s, we got a handle on the on the big pea supers that had come from the centuries before. Uh, but of course, the standout example for all these things is the Climate Change Act. Um, that is a model of world-leading legislation that set long-term targets that crucially had a bearing on the big industrial polluters and for the first time put in the boardroom uh, a massive environmental externality that um, uh, put a cost on carbon and meant that we've, in just the space of a few years, switched toward an economy that very soon will be mostly uh, uh, renewables based I hope uh, and that is a model that has led the world uh, and I think should be our model and our inspiration for how we deal with the other half of the picture which is the natural environment crisis that we're facing. Mm, yeah so you, you've moved us on to exactly what I wanted to ask which is 
what are some of the risks of the UK leaving the EU for the natural environment? And maybe you can explain things like, for example, what the governance gap um, mean, but also what inspiration can we take, particularly from things like the Climate Change Act and the Committee on Climate Change, in addressing those risks and actually turning this into an opportunity to strengthen protection for the natural environment in this country? The future is still so open. Uh, it could go either way, as you know, Matt. We could still be in a position where we're looking at political ideologies like uh, deregulation for the sake of cutting costs to business, meaning that some of those crucial laws that we've come to depend on that come from Europe can finally be on the table for, for deregulation. They've been protected by virtue of their European status for so long that there is still a risk that when we leave, the um, the rush to make short-term economic savings means that things like our birds and habitats directives, which give us those sites and species protections, will be weakened. There's a risk to not just to the letter of the law, but how well that law is updated and upheld. So the crucial part of the law that's still at risk is um, the ability to uphold it in the courts. We know that the EU has been massively interventionist on this. So of all the areas of EU law, we've been the UK has been taken to the courts most on environmental law, and we keep losing. Uh, so I think it was something like, uh, 32 out of 36 cases that have uh, gone to the European courts on environmental matters in the last decade or so, we've lost. That's uh, the UK that's, has lost them. That's the UK, yeah. And that's meant that we've been forced to take action on cleaning up water quality. Uh, uh, it's meant that decisions that have affected Natura 2000 sites that Secretary of State made a ruling on have been overturned at the EU level. It's meant that we've had to take action on, on air pollution. So that's, that level of judicial oversight uh, is one that's really important and, and risks being, being lost. So that's the sort of negative end of the spectrum. The fact is that there is still a huge opportunity to be grasped if we want to. So uh, there are ways to improve uh, the application of the crucial principles of EU environmental law. We could apply the polluter pays principle a lot better than we do now and make sure that those people who take most out of nature take more than they put in and are forced to pay for it. Uh, we could apply the precautionary principle better so that when we go about things like drugs and chemicals and pesticides and licensing, we take a more sensible approach to, uh, to testing things and proving that they are innocuous before we allow them on the market. Uh, we could do better on access to justice, so making sure that every citizen can bring a complaint if the government uh, doesn't uphold environmental law properly. And of course, the big area of opportunity is land management, where we've been bound in by the constraints of the common agricultural policy for so long. If we use this opportunity to invest, let's face it, oodles of cash in their farms and paying the farmers to do the right things for nature, uh, then we could make um, a green Brexit into reality. But to do that is going to be a massive task. 
I think it's really important to emphasise that even though we've had some great promises from government around a new watchdog, around a new environmental principles policy, to actually make those into world-leading bodies and not just replicate a version of what we've had in the EU is an absolutely Herculean task. Uh, and uh, that's why we should be drawing inspiration from things like the Climate Change Act to say, we're not just going to replace what we had from the EU. That's a difficult task and we might just end up with a pallid version of what we had before. No, 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 that just won't do. Time's running out for nature anyway and we have to bring in something that's going to be truly world-leading uh, for when we leave the EU. And we might, um, we might succeed and we might you know, set up, set new exciting new targets and we might create a new body that's independent of government to oversee progress on the natural environment. How, after the, you know, the process of that, which might take two or three years, how do you keep the government and the public engaged on the state of the natural environment over years to come after that and on, on the progress that follows? That's a really good question um, and one that I think we, we, we need to tackle more overtly actually. So uh, for me, one of the most important things is creating uh, public and parliamentary visibility on progress. So we, uh, I mentioned before about those sort of FTSE indexes of markets going up and down uh, and that measuring and reporting might sound boring but it creates political pressure and it creates public accountability. So we need to have a moment, preferably a moment in Parliament in a big set piece every year where the government reports on how it's doing. Is the air cleaner this year than it was last year? Are more water, water bodies, are rivers and streams fit for drinking and swimming in and fit for wildlife than they were last year? Have we got more diversity and more species? Uh, are our habitats in better condition than they were last year? And it's that kind of regular reporting where we tell uh, the public and where government ministers have to stand up at the dispatch box and say whether the index is going up or down that will really um, help to create that kind of momentum. Because one of the challenges of the natural environment side of things is often um, the the changes that we see and the risks that we face are so incremental uh, and so um, hard to detect that from, from person to person and from generation to generation, unless our scientists and our politicians bring the, the, the real progress and the real risks to light, it's very easy to miss them. It's easy to walk through St. James's Park and admire the pelicans and think everything's okay. <laughs> I've just been for an ice cream in the park uh, and uh, I was surrounded by uh, daffodils and happy people and green. And, and in those moments, you, it's, it's hard to imagine the true extent of the, the natural environment uh, and the extinction crisis that we face here in the UK and internationally. And so to make sure that the pr pressure and... Uh, and momentum is kept up. I think we need that framework of clear reporting, measuring and accountability. Uh, I'd have a natural environment budget alongside uh, the, the, the main budgets every year where um, the Secretary of State has to say, uh, 
you know, are we doing better or worse than we did last year? Uh, and set a, a, a long-term trajectory for where we want to get to. Mm, excellent. That wasn't your laptop battery about to die, by the way, was it? <laughs> no, you heard that, did you? I think that was... Uh, uh, I th there's an excellent new um, WhatsApp group for uh, nature folk that's giving me more bleeps on my phone than anything else. So. <laughs> oh, that sounds fun. Um... Okay, I'll move on to my um, to my next question. So I wanted to come back to uh, come back to kind of a slightly more concrete discussion around habitats and wildlife and the stuff that you were talking about at the beginning when you were describing your your beautiful glade. Um, and you know, I'm very lucky. A few miles down the road from where I live at the moment, there's um, there's a beautiful patch of uh, woodland here in Worcestershire. It's got a lovely brook running through it that in recent years has been recolonized by otters and there's kingfisher and dipper and gray wagtail on it and i think i only appreciate you know i grew up here but i only appreciate that more and more with every year that goes by um so drawing on your own area which is working on for the wildfowl and wetland trust so thinking a lot about wetlands and the health of our water bodies in the uk if we were to get the dream kind of scenario that you talk about um, what would that look like in slightly more concrete terms for some of our water bodies <laughs> and wetland habitats? What, you know, can we give that a little bit of colour for people so they can imagine what they might see out in the countryside that would be different? We cannot. I was only chuckling because um, I always try to avoid the uh, use of in more concrete terms or, uh, or I always find myself saying, and we need to build on that. No, we don't need to build on that. That's exactly what we don't need to do. Um, less so, concrete. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. What does that mean in less concrete terms? Uh, and actually, uh, that brings me on to one of the ways that people would see a practical Smoothly difference. Uh, well, uh, one of the things that we always need to bear in mind if we work in environmental politics is that we shouldn't diminish the importance of other absolutely crucial policy agendas and we all know that we need more houses um, and the, the parties that are in this mad rush to build 200, 300,000 houses a year uh, and one of the things that I hope that we would see if we get this kind of decision making right is that we would build those homes in a way that actually enhances and improves a lot of the natural environment as we go. So one of our favourite subjects at WWT is sustainable drainage. Uh, so this is uh, a, a way of mimicking natural processes in urban settings uh, to improve biodiversity, to contribute to water quality and to improve flood mitigation. So it's things like uh, ditches and swales and retention ponds and green roofs that are built into the fabric of the of the places we live so that instead of having to deal with surface water flooding and have more environment agency alerts and uh, uh, and uh, more damage to our homes and businesses we actually plan for homes that are built to quality eco standards from the start and that'll mean that people maybe have to get used to seeing slightly messier edges along their street sides because they've got these uh, little wetland areas where the runoff is allowed to infiltrate into the ground. Uh, it'll mean that maybe more communities get involved in, in the upkeep of uh, some of these green spaces. But what I hope that it will also mean is that when we deal with those big societal agendas, that we don't fix one problem and create another. 
and that when we've built enough houses for people in 10 years time we build homes in a way where people can have access to wonderful bits of natural environment that actually deliver those services and bits of resilience that they need at the other end of the scale i hope if we get this right we'll also start valuing the enormous benefits that green infrastructure can provide at the macro scale so things like um, coastal realignment uh, is a way of saving potentially millions and millions of pounds for uh, communities at flood risk along our coasts all around the UK. Uh, creating wetlands like the RSPB has done at Wallasey and like WWT has, has done at Steart can be a wonderful way to create habitat for hundreds of thousands of birds. Visit these places and you'll see. But it's also a way uh, to save money on, on, on flood defence. And at the moment, we keep allocating our flood defence money year after year in a blinkered way that, that goes back to those old concrete solutions and those old engineered ways of doing things. The country should move to a situation situation where we appreciate green infrastructure, know its condition and invest in its maintenance in exactly the same way as we do for critical infrastructure assets like energy systems and transport systems. If we thought about large-scale wetlands and large-scale meadows in that same way, know how they are and invest in them so that they deliver the services we need, then hopefully everybody would start to see far more um, uh, green infrastructure and big wonderful wetlands than they do massive infrastructure projects that that you see people chaining themselves to, to trees for to stop at the moment yeah okay um i want to i want to change gear slightly and ask about um ask about your experience in westminster so you worked in westminster for a while what skills do you feel you developed during that time in westminster that you then took to your roles at outside in NGOs, now as Head of Government Affairs for the Wild and Wetland Trust, in trying to then influence Westminster to make, uh, you know, in terms of environmental decisions? Hmm, good question. Well, I can, I can give a plug. We're about to recruit a new um, policy and government affairs officer at WWT. Uh, doubling the size of my team, so uh, uh, so look out for that, everybody. Uh, and the key skills uh, that uh, that we'll be looking for in in that, they're not they're not knowing the ins and outs of political parties. They're not about the ability to go and schmooze in in the corridors of power. Those are the skills that everybody imagines you need in a political job. Actually, the things that I've learned are really important are the ability to um, empathise with what people need. So you need to know what, what a politician needs. They need someone who can identify a problem uh, succinctly come up with an answer in a way that they can express clearly uh, and give them the facts and arguments that they need to articulate those ideas in Parliament. And so really what I learned from working in Westminster 
was that all that stuff that you see on the West Wing and on House of Cards um, is is flim flammery around the edges. And actually, the skills you need here are the ability to think through a problem and write down the answer. And if you can do that, you can be a successful advocate for nature in Parliament. So when we put out our recruitment advert, it'll say, can you think, can you talk and can you write? If you can do that, it doesn't matter if you've worked in politics for 10 years or none. It doesn't matter if you've got six degrees or none. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're Labour, Conservative or Lib Dem or SNP. If you can think through a problem and uh, express the answer articulately, then uh, come and come and join us. I think it's really interesting you've said that. So since since I first met you, goodness knows when, several years ago, um, three qualities in your in your professional approach to your work really struck me. The first is obviously, as I'm sure people are hearing, your energy and your passion. The second is your uh, ability to analyse things. And the third is your written and your verbal communication. And I was lucky enough to be able to see you give it oral evidence to the... Uh, environmental audit committee the other day on uh on what was that session on that was on the future of uh, food and farming in the uk um so, 25 year plan I think that sorry that was on the 25 year plan yes i'm losing track of all the various things that are going on um, so i think it's really interesting that you've identified those three things for people who might be thinking of applying for that role or at least who might be interested in a career in um the environment and and politics what pieces of advice might you give them or what pieces of advice that are commonly given would you suggest they ignore? <laughs> uh, I remember well the, the first bit of uh, advice uh, I was given which <laughs> which was by a, a barman at university who said have you seen w4mp.com uh, the loads of great ways to get some experience on there so go and have a look at w4mp.com and be a researcher for somebody green for a while when I say green I don't mean the party I mean someone who cares about the environment uh, and um, going in and um, uh, spending some time as a researcher is a good way to hone those uh, analytical skills um, uh, and the other thing would be always draw energy and um, ideas and enthusiasm from the the brilliant folk around you. So uh, the main thing I was scared about giving evidence to EAC that day uh, wasn't having a bunch of MPs in front of me. It was sitting next to uh, conservation legends on the panel with me people like ruth davis and uh, and simon from the national trust uh, uh, and georgia from the uh, from birmingham and black country wildlife trusts you know these are great nature enthusiasts uh, who are always up for chatting about what we can do better uh, and uh, there are so many inspiring people in the sector that uh, i never get um, bored or tired of it because there's always somebody to go and uh, uh, be revitalised with and I always enjoyed popping around to your office at the RSPB for that uh, for that very reason Matt. Uh, I, rem I remember my first day at the RSPB uh, the, the, the delight of arriving at the office at the lodge uh, and <laughs> so the, the cliche came to life as one of the RSPB scientists 
popped out of a bush with, with hair. <laughs> his hair was all wild and his eyes were wide and he actually had uh, what, a pooter, you know, one of those things that you suck up insects with in GCSE biology hanging out of his mouth. And I thought, yes, this is a place where people really mean uh, what they say and, uh, you know, it's uh, the joy of working uh, in a sector where uh, we're, we're, we're working for something that really matters and where everybody is part of a mission uh, is, is, is one that uh, I hope will keep, keep people inspired. It truly is. I think you've identified something really important there. Okay, so in the last, in the last little bit, I've got some, some quick-fire questions. The questions are quick. You can take more time to answer them if you want. The first of which links to what you've just said and is another of the questions that was submitted via Twitter, which is, um, what, if anything, do environmental charities need to improve to make themselves more successful? This is one of the few frustrations that uh, that I find in our professional world is that sometimes uh, the badges get in the way of the mission, and sometimes conservation organisations fight amongst themselves for profile, for members, for having uh, their particular brand on things uh, and that can get in the way of the outcome. Of course, charities have to spend time building their profile and raising money and attracting members, but that should never be our um, reason for doing things. It's always the means to the end of environmental improvement. And sometimes we can allow the means to become the motivation and that's something that we need to sort as a sector and actually over the past few months faced by the risks of Brexit one of the real bright sides has been to see everybody come together uh, as uh, under new coalitions and old and, and work together more strongly so that's been good the other thing that I'll say very quickly is we need to make sure that we talk to the world more than we talk to ourselves and sometimes uh, we get so excited by the intellectual minutiae of a particular policy problem that we forget that actually deadlines come and go uh, and we can't spend time talking about it so that we miss the deadline. If there's one sector that is endemically late, it's the conservation sector. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes we just need to get our stuff out there uh, to, to, uh, to make a difference. Okay, excellent. I would certainly agree with you that since I started working in the conservation sector back in 2009, um, the amount of partnership working, particularly in recent years, has really, has really improved. Um, and I hope that it continues to improve more because it has been one of the really bright things over the past two or three years, specific, mm. uh, especially. Okay, um, a couple more of the uh, questions that we were sent. Uh, <laughs> what species do you secretly hate brackets because everyone <laughs> because everyone has one <laughs> uh, well uh, that's a, a good question um uh, uh, there's probably more than one uh, probably, uh it's tempting to say people but actually i quite like people but sometimes you, d you do despair of our species don't you occasionally yeah um uh but I don't like wasps. 
I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Bug Life. I'm sorry, Matt Shardlow. Uh, I'm sorry, all you wasp enthusiasts out there who can tell me what wonderful, friendly things they are. But for some reason, I, I still flap like a maniac whenever one, whenever one comes near. My, my, my private nightmare is to go rock climbing one day and have a wasp land on my nose. I know I would just leap to my death immediately. Uh, so <laughs> wasps, wasps don't, uh, don't have a place of love in my heart. Sorry. Okay. Despite them being wonderful, they, uh, they're not for you. I think that's okay. <laughs> um, the next one is... So the next one, the next one is how do you stay so positive? I think I think it's probably important to say that even people who may seem outwardly very positive, uh, I'm not talking necessarily about you here, Richard, but um, you know, even people who may seem outwardly positive most or all of the time um, might not necessarily be so be that way inwardly. And there's lots of challenges that come with our job, but um, nonetheless, how do you stay positive, or what? I suppose what gives you hope as well. Yeah, I think I think your caveat there, Matt, was was a good one. Um, certainly not uh, uh, not always brimming with uh, positivity, and there are some days where uh, the challenges that face us seem pretty overwhelming, uh, and especially when um, uh, when vested interests can seem to hold more sway than the moral authority or when um, uh, we trip over ourselves and miss opportunities it can you know uh, it can be really hard to keep positive about these things but I suppose I draw energy from uh, the knowledge that this is the challenge of our generation, uh, that if we get this right, we stand to benefit not just wildlife, but millions of millions of people. That's, that's not to say that, uh, that um, any one of us will, will make a difference that, that will have world-changing effects, but together we really can do some phenomenal things and uh, make a difference to the world. So that's something that's inspiring. And I, I mentioned it before, just the fact that um, we are living at a time when it's possible for uh, people to come together as a global community and tackle existential problems is something that uh, often gives me hope. So when you think about things like uh, the ozone crisis uh, back in the 80s, um, you know, this, this was something that we were all worried about that could actually have uh, a devastating effect on, on nature and on millions of people. But we were able to come together to uh, agree global treaties and uh, change the way that businesses work come up with solutions, technological and political, that meant that uh, that, that problem has been, uh, at least for now, uh, severely diminished and diverted. So, so that kind of demonstration of the potential that people have to do good is one that, uh, that keeps inspiring me. And the third thing I know I've talked on to your quick question uh, is, is the joy of, of 
the investigation. So um, there is always a new policy challenge to tackle. Uh, there's always a new uh, way to, uh, to to idea to come up with uh, that that is a potential solution, uh, and trying to innovate and trying to come up with uh, the new uh, green idea, uh, and then uh, share it with people and uh, inspire people with it is something that's that is constantly fun and fascinating. Excellent. Um, and don't worry, the, the questions are quick, but the answers can be as long as you want. Um, I'm interested in how long the next one's going to be. Uh, if you were king of the world for one day, what's the one <laughs> thing you would instantly change? Another of the uh, crowdsourced questions. Paul McNamee tweeted that one in. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, I don't know whether he remembers, but that was one of the questions that we were both posed when we were interviewed for the RSPB. Ah, uh, I so wondered what you meant by that reference. <laughs> Yeah, Sasha Clemenson, a brilliant environmentalist who's out in the Falklands at the moment playing with the penguins. Uh, it was his curveball question uh, um, that he used at the end of uh, end of our interviews. Um, and I think uh, I think I answered then uh, the same way as I'd answer now, which is I'd get the prices right. So um, I was talking before about ways that you can make systemic change and influence a million things all in one. It's a matter of great despair that we don't pay farmers and environmentalists well for the good they do for nature. And it's an absolute scandal that we don't uh, make the people who pollute our natural world uh, pay for the damage they do. So uh, if I were king for the day, I would uh, wield my great big golden pen uh, and and whack a bunch of taxes on the things that are environmentally polluting uh, and uh, take out some of my pots of kingly gold and rubies and festoon uh, people who are good for the environment with uh, with extra dosh so that those daily decisions uh, that affect nature are um, become easy ones we all want the right choice to be the easy choice so that when we go and stand in the supermarket it's stupid that organic food costs more uh, than uh, than cheap chicken that's been bad for the world in the way it's been raised. Switch that round with my kingly powers. Excellent. Okay. Um, I've just got three or four of these quick questions left. Is that all right? Yeah, of course. Okay, cool. So the next one is, um, what books do you often recommend or gift to other people? Oh, no. <laughs> I, I should probably be dishonest about this and say uh, say something ever so erudite uh, but the fact is I love books with dragons and magic in no that's uh, right I think the last answer to this question was the Lorax so uh, oh really yeah um, so uh, I've been particularly enjoying Patrick Rothfuss recently uh, The Name of the Wind is a brilliant book um, but read it at your peril because he's written two out of three of a trilogy and and has spent years not finishing the third so you'll have to wait for the end of that trilogy um and uh, another favorite is a, a a really sort of uh violent and uh, uh pessimistic fantasy view on human nature um uh called 
um, what's the man's name? Uh, it's all about uh, a big barbarian bloke called they call the Bloody Nine because he's only got nine fingers. Um, I think it's called The Blade Itself, the first book, and it's really, really, really good. Excellent. Okay. David Aronovich, he's the author. Ah, okay. Right. Good. Um, next question. Um, is there? Uh, some people sometimes find this question a little bit tricky. Um, uh, but is there anyone in particular who's been a real inspiration or mentor to you? Uh, in in professional terms, oh, there have been, there've been so many. Uh, there, the lady I worked for when I was at university, who is a, a peer in the House of Lords called uh, Baroness Miller of Chilthorne Doma, uh, was a totally inspiring lady. Um, she is the sort of lady who just always does what's right. Um, and if I could have a little wristband that said, what would Sue do on it uh, to remind myself to always take uh, the, the moral high ground, then that would be a good thing because she showed me how to do it. Uh, but there, there are so many, Matt. I mean, we are lucky to be in a sector full of inspiration and actually one man worth mentioning because he's just retired is the brilliant Robin Wind uh, who was nature policy officer at the RSPB and was just always willing to give the time to talk through an idea uh, uh, and had nature at his fingertips and in his heart and in his head uh, and he was a brilliant inspiration and I'm sure will continue to be from his uh, retirement settee. I would definitely second that. Okay. Um, so penultimate question for me, um, some of the some of the things that I've got wrong or some of the failures in my conservation career. So, for example, accidentally flooding a field or turning up to a, <laughs> turning up to a parliamentary meeting in Converse shoes have been the uh, have been the things that have taught me the most. Is there a particular failure that's one of your favourites that's taught you a lot? Uh, uh, that I mean, uh, as with everybody, I have a, a career riddled with failures, many of which I try to forget, but uh, daily reminders. Um, uh, perhaps the one that springs to mind is when uh, uh, we were taking out this, that, a species champion uh, out on site for um, a day, uh, and uh, I decided that the best way to uh, evoke the spirit of the species since we hadn't found it was to do an impression uh, and uh, I dashed around uh, trying to do demonstrate how a swift's flight pattern looks different from a swallow's uh, and screeching uh, to, 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 to give the impression of a swift call uh, and uh, my boss at the time uh, was, was singularly unimpressed uh, and uh, I suppose that the lesson the lesson there is uh, that while it's always good to show your enthusiasm and to try to share your passion for things uh, in polite society, it's always good to moderate them and remember your audience. So uh, my advice for career progression for everybody is only use swift impressions with your friends. Yeah, sparingly at best. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay, finally, I think this link's really back really nicely to something that you said very eloquently earlier which is that we need to as environmentalists make sure we're speaking more to everyone else and 
not quite so much to ourselves. So if you could put a message, whether that's something by you or a quote from someone else, on a billboard for thousands or millions of people to see, what would it be? Oh, that's a good one. I, I steal that question with pride from another podcaster called Tim Ferriss. I'm afraid I can't claim the credit for coming up with that question myself. Uh, can you tell me what he said? Oh, he asks the question. Ah, oh, I see. I see. So, uh, <laughs> uh, a, a billboard for everyone. Um, uh, I think I think uh, it would say something like. Uh, um, What, 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 think what it's really worth. Um, uh, that would do. So, um, a, a reminder to folk to um, question themselves about why they're really chasing that extra ten grand on their salaries, or uh, which, of course, is easy to say when you. Uh, Obviously, for some people, that's very important. But for most of us, what's enough? What's enough? Maybe that would be the thing to put. How much is enough? Uh, I think we all get caught up in the race to have more things, do more things, get further and higher. And actually, uh, very often, when you stop to think about the most precious things in life, uh, they're the family around you and the uh, wonderful nature that you can enjoy for free uh, and if we all stopped to ask ourselves uh, how much is enough then perhaps we wouldn't all be racing for uh, the extra flat screen tv or thinking that we needed to have uh, that latest disposable item that is the cause of so much um, of the environmental damage that we face today and really doesn't enhance our lives very much when we come to consider it. So how much is enough? Excellent. I think that's a brilliant note to, to end on. Is there anything that you wanted to say or that I haven't asked you about? Uh, only thank you very much for uh, inviting me to come and do your interview, Matt. And thank you for all the podcasts you've done so far. I've enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed the back catalogue. Uh, and uh, good luck with, with your new job at the National Trust. It's brilliant work. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, no, that was, that was so much fun. Thanks, I really enjoyed that. Thanks, so did I. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much and until next time.